Am I on? There we go. Good morning. Am I on? There we go. Good morning. Called Devoted. And we've been looking at the three great relationships that we are to be devoted to as followers of Jesus. Loving God, devoted to loving God, devoted to loving the church, and devoted to loving our neighbors. Um, And we're walking through those kind of circle by circle this year. We've been considering the first one, and today we've transitioned into that second circle of love for the church, devotion for the church. And last week, we kind of introduced this topic as we wrapped up that first circle, and we saw that these first two circles are intimately related because one of the ways that we love God back is by loving His people, Um, loving the church, loving the folks who are sitting in this room. And that's what's prompted the curious arrangement of chairs, if you weren't here last week, is that you might look across the room and see other faces and be mindful that this is how I love God back, by loving the people who are in this room with me, part of my church family. Um, So every time you walk into the room during this Circle, Circle 2 series, you'll be sitting in this arrangement, and I hope you'll be reminded... This is how I love God back, by loving the church, by loving his people. Um, This is essentially what Jesus told Peter in last week's lesson that we looked at in John chapter 21, where Jesus says to Peter, not once, not twice, but three times he queries him, saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Essentially, he's saying, care for, love my people. Peter, this is how you love me back. And so we want to think about that together. I know some of you are looking across the room, and you see people, and you think, uh-oh, what have I gotten myself into, right? I have to love these people? Um, that's not... That's not how this this works. Um, Jesus has called us to this kind of love, um, to love them well, and it's important that we do. Let let me see if I can share with you about this from from by way of an illustration. Um, 34 years ago, this very day, I walked down the aisle of a church, and I made this woman my bride, right? That's my wife, Stephanie. Uh, That's a recent picture. Um, (laughs) See, that's, a, that's the thing about my wife. She is ageless, which is why I'm just showing you a picture of my wife. Um, so imagine after we got married 34 years ago, we invite a friend over, right? Um, and he says, uh, is Steph going to be there? And I say, yeah, of course she'll be there. She's going to fix the meal. We're going to have dinner together. And he says, well, then I think I'm good. I'm going to pass. I'm like, why? He says, well, your wife's really not the best cook. And he says, and plus, she's kind of a plain Jane. She's really not that easy to look at. I mean, let's be honest. And then he says, "Um, and she's not exactly a great conversationalist, unless you think third graders are great conversationalists. And he says, hey, Larry, can we meet somewhere else? And I say... Somewhere else would be fine, just not we, okay? 
to say that our friendship would be affected by a conversation like this and what he had to say and think about my bride would be an understatement, okay? Me and this guy, if he existed, we're done, okay? End of friendship. It's over. Um, we talked about how this works last week. See, when, when you love someone, you love what they love, it's, it's one of the shaping effects of love on our own hearts. Um, so you say, who are these people? And, and why is it important that I love them? And my answer is, they are the bride of Christ. The very bride of Christ. And that's why it's important that you love them. Because he loves them so. And that is what we are. This is one of the recurring metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about God's people. That we are his bride. I mean, you go all the way back to the pages of the Old Testament. Isaiah, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Your maker is your husband. And you flip all the way then back into the New Testament, Revelation. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. It's a common metaphor for God's people in the Bible. And, and this, guys, you need to know, I want to put you at ease. This is the one time, contrary to what Bruce Springsteen and Charles Barkley think, that you can think about being the bride, okay? And it's okay, okay? This is the one chance you get to do that. You need to think like the bride. And for guys, this can be, ladies have an advantage on us in thinking in this category, right? What does it mean for us to be and to love the bride? Um, and I'd like to address that by looking at a passage that's kind of surprising in this regard. It's, it's a passage about marriage, and it's going to teach us about what it means to be the church. So if you'll open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, I'll pray for us and then we'll look at that passage together. Would you bow with me, please? Father, again we ask, be our guide, be our teacher. May your word be prominent and preeminent. May our hearts be glad to welcome it as your good will for us, your people, your bride. So help us now, Jesus, by your spirit and your word, we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 21, where Paul writes to us and he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be <clears throat> holy and blameless or holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, it's a curious place 
to look for insight about the church in a passage about marriage. But if you look at the next two verses, Paul shows us that the church is the backdrop for understanding this marriage. And therefore, the marriage teaching instructs us about the church. He says, therefore, a man, he's quoting Genesis here, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So behind all that Paul is teaching about patterns for marriage lies his understanding of what it means to be the church, to be the bride of Christ. So let's unpack some of what Paul teaches in this passage about what it means to be the bride. And there are two main things that he teaches us in this passage. Starting back in verse 21 again. Submitting to one another, excuse me, out of reverence for Christ. Let me get a drink real quick. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, first thing we learn, to be the church, to be God's bride, is to live willingly under Christ's lordship. That's the backdrop for what Paul is teaching about marriage. To willingly embrace that Jesus is Lord of the church and of your life is what's wrapped up in this imagery of being the bride of Christ. Underneath all that Paul is teaching about submission in marriage and family life lies the reality that we as Christ's bride, the church, are to live in submission to Christ as Lord. And he comes at this from a number of angles. Um, Verse 21, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Reverence is a pretty tame rendering of that idea. It it actually just means fear um, in most cases. Uh, We get our word for phobia from it. Um, It means to fear. And fear is a little bit different for us as believers than when we were rebels, but it doesn't mean that there's no fear of God. So the difficulty for us is we have these images, right, of uh, what I call Sunday school Jesus, right? And Sunday school Jesus has children in his lap, and there's a nice soft glow, kind of like a nightlight around him, and there's always a stray sheep, you know, in the picture, and that's Sunday school Jesus. Well, if I could borrow from an old Sears commercial, this is the softer side of Jesus, There is another side of Jesus. That's not all of who Jesus is. Um, There's another portrait where Jesus promises to return as judge Jesus. Let's look at that portrait. Jesus in John 5 says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So clearly, however you work it out, whatever scheme you're following, 
Jesus says there is coming a day when there will be judgment for evil deeds. This should give us pause when we consider stepping into something evil. Actually, it shouldn't give us pause. It should bring us to a grinding halt and turn us around 180 degrees to flee the evil we are considering, right? We submit to him out of reverence, out of reverential fear of God. The church is to fear him in such a way that we obey him. And in this case, that obedience comes in our submission to those he has placed over us, those he has given authority over us. But Paul's clear when he talks about submission in marriage, it's an expression of the church's submission as the bride of Christ to Christ. He says it repeatedly. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. So the backdrop for all this teaching is the church's submission to Christ. She, as the bride, submits to Christ as her husband. Um, You know, if you've ever reflected on the limits of a wife's submission to her husband at all, you know that there are places where a wife simply cannot follow her husband's lead, right? Bank robbing, for instance, okay? Bonnie should not have followed Clyde, okay? That's just wrong. So if the husband leads in a place that denies God or disobeys him in some way, the wife does not follow. But of course, with Christ now, as the bride of Christ, there are no such limits, There are no such exceptions to our submission to Christ as our Lord, as our our head. We are always to be in submission to his lordship. Contrary example is a lady named Nita Friedman, and uh, she was involved out a, a number of years ago out in U.S. Highway 95 in Bonners Ferry, Idaho, in a police chase, okay? Um... Let's see, the guy's name is uh, Police Chief Mike Hutler, or Hutter, rather. He's pulling her for reckless driving. He flips on his lights and siren, but instead of pulling over, um, Nita, the 66-year-old woman, pulls away. The police chase Nita through two counties. The chase did not end until the state police put a spike strip down in the road and took out three of the 66-year-old lady's tires. But what fascinated the officers who were involved in the chase is that Nita never broke any laws while she was running away from them. She, she obeyed the speed limit. <laughs> and one time there was a car making a left turn. She came to a complete stop behind it, waited for it to make the left turn before she resumed her fleeing from the police. John uh, Bukema comments, this is like obedience while running away. It's like obedience while running away. See, reverence for Christ demands our full submission to Him in everything. What does it mean to be the bride of Christ? It means that we are living out our lives in reverence of Him, in submission to Him as the bridegroom, the head of the church. Not mere obedience in one area while we're running away in another. Okay? Everything in our lives. Full submission. 
You know, there's a recent study, um, really disturbing study. It was done by that uh, website, Christian, ChristianMingle.com. Okay, some of you have visited it. Christian singles, they did a survey, Christian singles between, allegedly Christian singles between ages 18 and 59 were asked this question, would you have sex before marriage? The response, 63% of the Christian single respondents indicated yes. Obedience while running away. Jesus invites us to full submission to him as our head. And the beauty of that call, the beauty of that only makes sense to us when we look at the second thing that Paul teaches about us, about what it means to be the bride of Christ. Look, look at verse 20, starting in verse 25, at the second thing we learn. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. See, the second thing Paul teaches us behind the scenes of this marriage teaching is that to be Christ's bride means that you are deeply loved by Christ. Husbands, he says, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The image of being Christ's bride is the image of one who is deeply loved. Loved with what Paul says here is a sacrificial, purifying, exclusive, nourishing love. You are loved. Let's unpack that expression. A sacrificial, purifying, exclusive, nourishing love bit by bit. You are loved with a sacrificial love. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A reference to him giving his life on the cross. Um, Kelly Capich writes in his book, uh, God So Loved He Gave, that the New Testament consistently interprets both God's love and Jesus' death in terms of this sacrificial gift that's given. This is how God loves. He gives And what does he give? He gives himself. Out of his love for a broken and defiant world, God gives. He gives this gift. And he says, that's a little strange. That's not how we do gifts. He says, don't we normally give gifts to celebrate an achievement or to mark a joyous occasion, such as a birthday, anniversary, graduation, something like that? Occasionally, we'll give a gift after a misdeed as when a man sends flowers to a woman as a peace offering from some failing on his part. But he says, here with God, the innocent and offended party is the one who gives the gift. God has done nothing wrong, nor have we achieved anything we're celebrating. God looks at his rebellious creation, defined by its resistance to him, and what does he do? He gives a gift. He gives the gift. He gives his son, right? This is no 
This is no dollar store, tacky, re-gifting kind of giving. This is a king born in a disgusting animal's feed trough kind of giving. This is, this is the owner of all things in the universe stooping to live in a society where there are no modern conveniences kind of giving. It's the most powerful being in the universe taking a beating, being whipped, carrying a cross kind of giving. It's it's the only begotten Son of God, very God and very man, stretching out His hands and taking nails that should have been ours kind of giving. This is sacrificial love. This is great love. And as the bride, this is how you were loved. There was a, a movie a number of years back. It was called Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. Um, and in it, Rosie, Rosalie Futch, is a small town West Virginia girl. She enters a contest and she wins a date with a movie star named Tad Hamilton. Okay? But what she's unaware of is that her boss, her best friend and her boss at, over at the local Piggly Wiggly grocery store, his name is Pete, is secretly in love with her. And so Pete seeks counsel from that great secular source of wisdom, the local bartender. Her name is Angelica. Pete says to Angelica, the problem is I'm in love with Rosie. Angelica says, you know, I always thought that maybe you were. She says, so how much do you love her? Is it love? Is it big love? Or is it great love? And he says, what do you mean? She says, well, love you get over in two months. Big love, two years. But great love, great love changes your life. And so you as the bride of Christ, are loved with a great love, a great sacrificial love that is intended to change you. Specifically, the intent of this love is to purify you and set you free. Paul says it this way. Speaking of how Jesus loves the church, and he says he loves her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You know, the great sacrificial love of Jesus for his bride, the church, this church, for you, is intended to transform us, to purify us, it's not like there's no spot, no wrinkle, any such thing to set us free. And scholars say that this language harkens back to a passage in the Old Testament by the prophet Ezekiel about how God's love purifies his people as his bride. And I'd like to read it to you and just let you listen to it. It's one of the most powerful and graphic portrayals of God's purifying love in, in the whole Bible. And it goes like this. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you. 
to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard on the day you were born. God says, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment and your breasts were formed and your hair had grown and yet you were naked and bare and when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness and I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth and you ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. See, this love with which we are loved, it has a purifying effect on us. You see it described by the prophet here. They went from bloody and abandoned in a field to wearing silk and gold and silver and being renowned for their beauty simply because they were loved by the Lord. How does love purify Kind of a, a backhanded example is um, some statistics they did after the 2014 Super Bowl. One of the world's largest porn websites published their statistics from that day in 2014. 2014, those of you who um, don't remember, the Seattle Seahawks crushed the Denver Broncos 43-8. to Worst loss ever in Super Bowl history. And so they looked at how, what happened with porn use on that day in Seattle and in Denver? Now, before the game, Denver, the hits on porn sites were 50% 50, 50 below the national average. After they got slaughtered, they were 10% above the average porn use. A 60-point swing. In Seattle, after the game... Um, when everybody was busy hanging out with friends and laughing and talking and watching replays, it was almost 20% below the average. Now, the guy who's writing about this is a British journalist named Martin Daubney, and he says that um, most men, this is a conclusion, most men and women turn to porn not when they are happy, but when they are at their most vulnerable. And so great love, the assurance that you are truly loved by God in all the ways we've been talking about for three months now, that protects us from that vulnerability, that longing, because it and only it can satisfy deep down in here 
You are loved. You are loved by God. You are loved by God enough that he would give his son for you. And the more we grasp that, the more we understand it, the more we are satisfied by that, it protects us and purifies our desires because it makes us want to love him back. To be the church means we are loved with a great, sacrificial, purifying, and, and an exclusive love. Listen to the language again back in our passage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It says a phrase that we don't use very much, that he might sanctify her. That the idea is that he would set her apart, set her apart just for him. That's why it says to present the church to himself in splendor. See, we are loved with an exclusive love, a love that lays claim to us forever for one lover, Christ alone. And this is what our, this is what our wedding, weddings reflect, right? Bride and groom walk down this aisle. They stand right here. First thing that happens, starts the whole uh, ceremony unfolding, is a thing called the Declaration of Intent. And so the pastor turns to the bride and says, Thelma, will you have this man to be your husband? To live together in the covenant of marriage, will you love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and in health and forsaking all others. Be faithful to him as long as you both shall live. And Thelma says, oh, I will. Okay. Because she's loved with an exclusive love and she wants to give it back. The love of Christ, this great sacrificial purifying love is intended to mark us off as his. Okay. And Jesus says, you cannot love God, for instance, and mammon at the same time. Can't love God, can't love money. Can't love God and love porn. Can't love God and whatever your escapist pleasure of the moment happens to be. It's an exclusive love. Are you reciprocating the kind of exclusive love that God has professed for you and lavished on you in Christ? Are you loving him back that way? See, to be the bride means that we are loved with a sacrificial, purifying, exclusive, let's add one more, nourishing love. Last couple of verses in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. He feeds it. He cares for it. Christ does this for his bride, for his church, for this church. He does it for you and for me every day. This is the language of caregiving, okay? He feeds it. Every day, Christ is taking care of you. He's interceding. 
He's protecting. He's providing. He's guiding. He's instructing. He's rescuing. He's maturing. He's sustaining each and every day as an expression of his love for you. He's feeding you. It's the language of caregiving. But it's also the language of affection, right? He's cherishing you. He nourishes and cherishes his bride. Um, It's the language of affection. Christ cares about you. He's not indifferent. He's not mechanical. I mean, any, if you read anything about Jesus, you know that he's compassionate. He cares about widows. He weeps over cities. And now in an ongoing daily way, as an expression of his love for the church, he cherishes you the way a groom cherishes his bride. Okay. And some of you I know that's not your present um, experience as you see it. You say, well, I, I, that's not what I feel like. My days are hard. My suffering is relentless. Where is this care that you speak of? One of my favorite stories of, that illustrates this in a way that is meaningful to me is um, told by a lady named Jennifer Rothschild. And she describes a lady named Susan who, Susan... Um, Gets on a very crowded bus and all the passengers are watching her get on the bus. She fumbles with her cane as she nestled herself into her seat because it had been a year since Susan had lost her eyesight. When she first became blind, she fell into a deep depression that she couldn't pull herself out. But her husband, Mark, loved her and loved her deeply. And so he began to help her overcome this depression and teach her and help her learn how she could function now that she had lost her eyesight. After many months of blindness, the article says, Susan began to feel more confident because of Mark's help, and she thought, maybe I can even go back to work. And so he begins to help her get ready to do her work. And every day, Mark would drive his wife to work, walk her into her office, make sure she was settled, and then leave and go to his military base across town because Mark was a military officer. And then he would come back and get her from work. This went on for several weeks. And with every day, Mark began to realize this cannot go on because he wasn't able to get to the base on time. And so the day came when he had to tell his wife, Susan, that he was not going to be able to drive her to work any longer. And she was devastated. She said, Mark, I can't ride the bus to work. I'm blind. How am I going to know how many stairs there are? How am I going to know what path to take? She says, I feel like you're abandoning me. But Mark was doing anything but that. He promised her, like he had done from the very beginning, he would do whatever it took to help her until she felt confident and independent on the bus. So he helped her with the routes. He helped her learn the steps. He helped her learn the paths. And finally, after several weeks of doing such, Susan was confident. He went to his base. She went to the bus. Monday morning, for the first time, she got on the bus. She went to work. She came home. It was flawless. And then Friday morning arrived. She's been doing, riding the bus all week. Susan makes her way onto the bus, and as she went to pay her fare, the bus driver said, ma'am, you sure are lucky. Susan says, are you talking to me? Bus driver said, yeah, it must feel good to be cared for as you are. And she goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Bus driver said, well, you know, every morning when I drop you off at your stop, as soon as those doors open, I can see that man standing over there at the corner. 
And he watches you. And as soon as you step off the bus, his eyes are on you. I think he's some kind of military officer because of his uniform. And his eyes follow you as you walk across that parking lot. And his eyes don't leave you as you're trying to walk up those stairs. And when your hand touches that doorknob, his eyes are on you. Until you open that door and go inside, that man doesn't take his eyes off of you. Once that door closes, he stands straight and tall like a sentinel. And he salutes you. And then he blows you a kiss. Susan burst into tears. She had no idea that her husband Mark had been watching her. And then the article says, but the lover of her soul never takes his eyes off of her. See, to be the bride, the bride of Christ, means that each day, every day, he cherishes us and he nourishes us. Often, in ways that we simply do not have eyes to see. But this is his promise to us. What does it mean to be the bride? It means we are in happy submission to Christ as our husband, as our head, as our Lord, because we know that we are loved by him sacrificially, exclusively, in a way that purifies and nourishes and cherishes us. The way a groom loves a bride. So, people sitting across from you guys, um, the ones that you're supposed to love, they are the bride of Christ. He loves them as his bride. And that's why we love them too. Because he loves them so. This is how we love God back. By loving one another as the very bride of Christ. Now this morning as, as we walk through this teaching, um, I hope that you've been listening for what God has to say to you. He may be saying something to you about what it means for you to be in submission to Christ as Lord, as your head. He may be saying something to you about your need just to welcome and ponder and be satisfied by the love of God for you. You need to think deeply about that. And uh, I want to encourage you, if God's speaking to you, we always have a time of response at the close and we keep the steps clear for people to come and just pray. And you don't have to come by yourself. You can drag a friend or a family member and say, I need to pray and just drag them with you. And our leaders, we're, we're right here, just drag one of us, we'll come pray with you. Um, but it's a good first response to what God is saying to you, to acknowledge that he's speaking and to bow before him in prayer and ask him to speak further. Especially this morning if you're thinking, I do not know God like this. I do not know and I do not know that God loves me like the way a groom loves a bride but I would love to. And we can help you with that. And again, our leaders are here. We'd love to talk with you just for a minute and pray with you and start a conversation about how you can know God and know his love in that way. So the team's gonna come and lead us in response. Let's bow and pray, and then we'll worship Christ who loves us so. Okay. Father, this is, this is good news. This is, this is remarkable news. We know that when it's at its best, 
the love of a, of a groom for his bride is unparalleled. And we know that with you it's more than at its best. And when a bride can happily trust the leadership of her husband, that is a beautiful thing. And we know that you are wholly trustworthy. Help us, Lord, to love and be the bride in ways that make you smile. We love you and we worship you now. Jesus, in your great name, amen. Let's stand. Let's worship Christ together.